In this episode, Manish Sarin, CFO at Sprinkler, talks about the huge impact CFOs can exert on their business, why technology is integral to finance functions today, and his view on how to navigate the current turbulent fintech market. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. Please note, this interview with Manish was recorded on the 23rd of June, 2022. So Manish, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here today. Manish, I'd I'd love to start, as we often do, by just understanding your experience and how you got to the position that you are in today as CFO at Sprinkler. So can you talk a little bit about your journey and, and what led you to where you are? Absolutely. I think at the very outset, I'd say I have a bit of a interesting path, having had many experiences getting to where I am. And at the start of it, I'm not sure I was very clear that I was going to end up as a CFO of a public company. I trained as an engineer. I was really into analytics, you know, graduated in computer science, spent some time actually trying to, you know, code and make a living of it. And I realized that it was a little too boring sitting in front of a computer all day writing code, wasn't that exciting, wanted to go be part of the business world. I worked for a little bit at uh, Pricewaterhouse. This was before they'd merged with Coopers and Librand to become PwC, was part of their financial advisory practice, and then came to the U.S. for business school, went to Columbia University in New York, and then spent the next 10 years on Wall Street. So started out at J.P. Morgan, then at Merrill Lynch, you know, very fine franchises, And all my work was really around either taking companies public, other corporate finance work, advising businesses on M&A. And that was fascinating for the decade that I worked there. But then I also concluded, you know, for the most part, I was a middleman. I was advising companies. I was working with CEOs. But I never really was the principal behind a decision. And I really wanted to be in that position where I could make choices go actually make impactful decisions for a business. And that's when I concluded, given my prior experience, it would be best if I went down the finance path. I joined a young company called Proofpoint at that time. They were 400 million market cap when I joined them, sort of a $10 stock price. And I had multiple roles in that company, starting in corporate development, moving to FP&A, moving to investor relations. And all of those really gave me an opportunity to try out different things in finance. The business really blossomed in the seven years that I was there. Recently got acquired for $12 billion. So it was a phenomenal return for investors and a huge learning opportunity for me. That led me to my first CFO role at a late stage private company called Exabeam before I took the sprinkler role 
three months ago. So a bit of a long-winded sort of explanation, but I think what I bring to the role is not just your typical finance role, but having dabbled with technology, worked in you know, advisory, sort of looked at how public investors look at things from a Wall Street lens, sort of gave me a unique perspective because the role of a CFO is very different now than what it used to be, call it a couple of decades ago. And then touching on that last point, how have you seen that role of the CFO evolve over time from the moment that you were first in there as an advisor and those people were your customers to now where, of course, you're in that very position? Yeah, that's a terrific question. I think there is a general misconception that a CFO is really a numbers guy, and that's where it stops. And I think that is so far from the truth because that just table stakes in today's CFO world. The fact that you have financial acumen and ability to understand numbers, well, every CFO needs to know that. What actually makes a good CFO is, first and foremost, the ability to influence. So if you think about you're really dealing with your peers, either ones running large product organizations or the ones running large sales teams, and your ability to influence them has a huge impact on the company. And secondly, it's the ability to distill complex ideas and make it easy to digest. So what I mean by that is we live in a world of sound bites. If you look at how companies go public, investors have 30 minutes to understand a story, look at some financials and figure out, do they want to make a big multi-million dollar investment? And that squarely lies on the CFO. So distilling complex technology aspects or business aspects and the ability to explain it in an easy to understand fashion, super important for a CFO. Very far from I'm closing the books on time. I think that's almost table stakes now in the finance world. I find that interesting that you focus on the storytelling, that aspect of a CFO role. We've had a certain recent guest who is an executive headhunter who works across all finance roles, like from middle to senior leadership and, of course, CFO roles as well. And in one of our recent conversations, he was commenting on the fact that many companies, when they look for a CFO, are looking for a mini CEO because, to your point, they expect them to take on many of the typical responsibilities that perhaps those CEOs just don't have the bandwidth and the time for. So that's very true. And it's particularly true in technology because a lot of the CEOs are founders, which by definition means they're technologists and they're not necessarily you know, great business managers. So they're looking for a foil, somebody who can be their partner in all of this and is way more adept at managing a business versus developing a product. What's your view then on those founder-led businesses? Because we've gone through cycles of, at one point, the founder is always the glorious hero to actually now, once they get to a certain stage, the founder can't be the right type of executive. And then it's kind of swung back and forth again over the years. What's your view on the the predominant model of founder-led companies, especially when they get to scale within the tech industry? That is a fantastic question. And, and as you know, they come in all sort of shapes and flavors. So there are obviously the much lauded publicly talked about ones like Steve Jobs, who created, you know, a big new set of industries just from the products he developed. And there are obviously others who are also were successful in their own right, but sort of concluded at a period of time that they were good at developing products, 
but not necessarily running a business. And they took a step back and became the chief product officer or the product evangelist. And I think this is where it's tricky in today's world, Uh, particularly as you look at how Silicon Valley is developed. It is very much a founder dynamic. It's hard even for VCs who put real money into these businesses to really go and change the founder dynamic. So I know having interacted with and worked with many companies that that is a touchy topic and it can go both ways, all driven by the situation at hand, the kind of investors you have at the table, and I'd say maybe even the EQ level of the founder himself or herself. It's interesting you say that because the other thing I've observed as well is that sometimes the founder has the ability to do things on principle in the way that another CEO wouldn't have the ability to do. And I think the larger the company, maybe the truer that is, because in large companies, the idea of like being beholden to your shareholders and stakeholders is, is a very serious responsibility for the CEO. And of course, for founders, it's the same but they've gone through the blood, sweat, tears and toil to get it to that stage. And often they've shaped the culture via principle, not just through you know financial outcomes. So they're, it's almost as if they have more of a capacity to make principle-based decisions. I don't know if that's something that you've seen as a CFO. I think you've hit the nail on the head. This is what I call the moral authority of the founder. And in a lot of times, I think investors, companies, businesses are comfortable giving that freedom to the founder because they know he or she is the glue in the fabric. And if they weren't doing what they are doing, a lot of the pieces would fall apart. So you're correct in your assessment that at times the financial metrics take a second seat, if you will. The key driver always is the ethos or the culture that the founder has created. And that is super important to keep it all together. And for you then, again, as a, as a finance leader, of course, your most important stakeholder partner is the CEO. They rely on you for truth and to obviously help run and lead the company, manage investor relations, so many key responsibilities. But equally for you, if you're considering a new opportunity or a different role as a CFO, presumably you have to assess very carefully the partner that you will be spending many, many hours a week and a year guiding the company through. Is that the case? So that is the case, but this is where I think this is the right forum. The CFO role in today's world is a very empowered role. So back again to if you were an accountant CFO, call it 20 years ago, you wouldn't have that same authority you have today. And I don't mean that you need to be not congruous with the founder and the CEO. What I'm trying to say is, There is a certain empowerment that that role brings. And the best CFOs are the ones where I see their conclusion is their swim lane, if you will, isn't just the finance function. They believe their swim lane is the entire company. And I used to work for one of those CFOs, and that's where I learned all the skills, is his view was whether it's product development, whether it's go-to-market, I have a say in it. And he wasn't only confined to being the finance guy. So I think if you approach this role with that lens, as long as you have a well-thought-out point of view, which might not agree with the founders, I think that's okay. Part of the CFO's function also is, unfortunately, you need to be comfortable to break some glass. And you can't be successful if you're just a yes-man 
the CFO is not the role for you. You should be super comfortable saying no to many things. You should be super comfortable breaking glass. I think those are the traits that define a great CFO versus just an average one. I think that that's interesting that you touch on that point of great CFO because you, you need to be able to say no, of course. And and famously, actually, CFOs would be the, the people that would have to be the perhaps the, the harshest decision makers in a company around like what can, can and can't be done, especially in troubled times where it relies on cash flow management and, and budgets. But of course, in the tech industry, innovation is critical and, and growth is, is critical. So how do you get the balance right between the need for that stewardship and in the tech industry, they need to be chasing growth and innovation at, at a pace that many other industries don't perform. And I think that's correct and a very pointed question because there is a certain nuance to being a tech CFO. Part of it is, like you said, the gestation period in a technology industry can be quite long. If you're in consumer goods, you know there is a demand for a particular product. It might be a year or two or three before you can introduce a new snack or a new fabric, very different from the tech industry. So the gestation periods can be quite long. And I've gone on record to say that the CFO is the chaperone for investment dollars. If you are not always thinking about, are these investments gonna give me the return that I'm looking for over an extended period of time, then you're you doing your investors a disservice. And look at the current market dynamic. I think part of the other thing that plays into it is you'll see very high sort of ebbs and flows in the tech industry. There'll be times when it's all gung-ho and giddy times are going to last forever. And there are going to be times like now with rising interest rates and rising inflation, where suddenly there is a reticence to invest in tech because mm, this is going to take a long time. So a good CFO will have his or her pulse on where are we in the business cycle? If I have a product that's going to take five years to develop, I can't count on the capital markets or investors being open with their money every year of those five years. So I need to figure out a financing mechanism that allows me to fund that product over the next five years. So good CFOs, private companies, public companies would, I'm hoping, have raised a bunch of money over the last couple of years. So as we enter into a bit of a pullback in tech financing, they're not sort of caught unawares. I think that's a fascinating point because with hindsight makes, of course, a lot of sense. And, and it would have been obvious that over the perhaps period of 2021, everybody should have been raising as much as possible, of course, to make sure they had the capital necessary to get through hard times. But of course, one of the trickiest things, and you'll know this as, a, as an ex-investment banker, is to time the market. And so it's very difficult in those moments where valuations are crazy and there's huge amounts of capital being invested to recognize that this is the frothy time or this is the top or is this is this before that or the new normal. So how do you try and, and time things correctly and recognize without the benefit of hindsight when the right moment is to raise that capital and when this could be the opportune time to, to as you said, make sure you've got the right financing in place? There's a saying that goes, you raise money when you can, not when you have to. So I think if you're spending too much time worrying about, oh, should I raise now versus later? You always raise now because you know you will always need it. Even look at public technology companies. 
they're always overcapitalized. You look at the likes of Apple. I mean, they might even have a trillion dollars of cash on their books. And the reason they do that is back again to gestation periods and technology can be long. And the other is the tech space evolves so much where your friend or, if you will, your company in an adjacent market may actually be your competitors a few years out. Everybody is in, is in each other's business, if you will. And that means you need to have enough capital, access to resources, access to quality talent, all of that at your disposal as you try to grow your business. The other thing is, as you would very very well know about the, the financial services market or, or Wall Street, capital markets are such where they've been jokingly called a banker is one who will give you an umbrella when it's shining and promptly want it back when it's raining. So as long as you know that's how the world works and and sort of aim your or structure your financing decisions around when it's raining, you better have your own umbrella. I think you'd be fine. I like that expression. It, it reminds me of the one about the consultant, you know, where you pay them to, to tell you the time using your own watch. So <laughs> these are age old phrases. So then like talking about the market conditions at the moment, I was looking at a, a report from an analyst group. It was talking about in particular for tech companies, so SaaS, fintech, and even consumer, the change in the last six months from the peak of November to now in terms of valuation multiples, in terms of the level of money investment that's going into all different stages of companies. And the fall really is quite stark and precipitous. And of course, it's affecting public and private tech companies alike. Like, what's your view on the current market? So some of this pullback that you're seeing and you're correct that the frothiness that was there in the technology industry, particularly in SaaS multiples, has come down. Some of this was to be expected. There was a time, maybe I'd say a year ago, where a lot of SaaS multiples were 30 times revenue, 40 times revenue. And a solid business that is non-tech probably would trade at, you know, 20 to 30 times earnings. So by any metric, you knew that this was crazy land. It couldn't continue. And we were in very unique, unprecedented times over the last couple of years. Uh, with the onset of the pandemic, the Fed obviously printed vast sums of money, pumped it into the economy. We've gone from an economy or a Fed balance sheet that was two or three trillion to now eight trillion. So whatever those numbers are, think about five or six trillion being pumped into the economy. It was going to show up in various parts of the economy and obviously lead to asset bubbles. And that's what we've seen. So there have been obviously excesses in the public markets, excesses in the private markets. Is this pullback healthy? Absolutely. Is this pullback here to stay? Again, we all are linear thinkers, so one would think, oh, this is going to be the new normal for a long period of time. But if you're a student of economic theory, you would see, you would sort of know that asset bubbles will form for a variety of reasons. So I'm going to say this is the new norm for now, but you never know what happens in a few years. Uh, we might be for a variety of reasons, whether it's a, a geopolitical things, a war in a distant land oil shock, whatever it might be, there's going to be another black swan that's going to lead to a variety of stimuluses in the economy, which might lead to a variety of other asset bubbles. But for now, this 
is, I would say, a healthy dynamic, these valuation multiples are a lot more defensible than the crazy ones we saw a couple of years ago. What advice would you have then, given that those market conditions for, say, some of your peers or or other CFOs, especially those perhaps at non-public companies where they're private and they're in they're in the game of raising rounds wherever possible? What advice would you give to them to help navigate what could be this new normal and in a very restricted funding environment? So, if they've already raised money, God bless them because they have a war chest that they can use and we don't really know how long the current environment will last. So if that's the case, I would I would expect they're looking at their expense base, they're pulling back any unnecessary spend. I'm sure their venture investors are probably all over them trying to give them the same advice. If they haven't raised money, well, depending on how big they are, that can lead to some stark choices. And this is where, as I was saying earlier, a good CFO would have seen a lot of this coming and hopefully would have taken some substantive steps to put the company in a good position. Business cycles will happen. There is no way around it. A good chaperone will have enough capital and probably more than enough capital entering a new business cycle. And it's all around managing your expenses, managing employee expectations, which is the other wild card in technology. Given some of the bigger players in the tech space, I think employee expectations are a little bit out of whack with what the reality is. And with the pandemic, obviously, we have a whole different working dynamic that's going on that's going to require some getting used to. And all of these will play into how do you finance and grow your business? There's so many competing trends because you've touched on one of them, which is the the expectations, say, within the tech sector, not even restricted just to the tech sector. But up until perhaps a couple of months ago, we were, the, the big conversation was the great resignation and how to keep your best and find other great people to add to your team. That still seems to be relevant. But of course, it, the headwind is, of course, the potential oncoming recession, which many believe is coming. And, and unfortunately, there have been a lot of companies, especially in the tech sector, that have laid off employees as well. So with that context in mind, how are you approaching both across the company and then more specifically within your team, the building up of your team and either trying to protect the people you've got or where you've got space, hire, hire and find others in the market? Yeah, that's a great question. I think every company right now, big or small, successful or not so successful, is struggling with it. Employee attrition, as I've spoken to CFOs and you know other software companies, it's in the 15, 25% range for most of the companies I've spoken with. So it's very high and very elevated from a historical perspective. And I think with the, I mean, the requirements of being local, driving to an office, you know, five days a week, with those behind us, that's opened up vast new opportunities for all employees. And I'm probably a prime example. I live in California in the Bay Area, but my head office is in New York. And I do commute, you know, a couple times in a month, but I probably wouldn't have had this opportunity pre-pandemic. A public company would have said, we want a CFO that is based in the local market. How would you lead your teams if you're not local? And that would have made a lot of sense. So I think people in my shoes, if they embrace the idea that this is the way life is going to be going forward, as long as productivity remains high, the fact that my employee is several time zones away, it really doesn't matter. What needs to happen, though, is you need to find enough opportunities for people to get together. 
Because the thing you always then worry about is how do you imbibe the culture? How do you hire so many employees during a pandemic who have never met each other? And Zoom is fine and dandy, but there is something to be said for a personal connection, getting to meet somebody, you know, having a meal with them, getting to know them on a personal level. Those connections really help you succeed. And doing that over Zoom is very hard. So how do I manage a team? How do we make sure we hire and retain people? It's all to do with finding adequate opportunities to get together, finding um, a common mission. And I always go out of my way to figure out training opportunities for people so they feel you are actually invested in their career versus just giving them work. I think that last part is so critical because, as you mentioned, the there was a point where people could be perhaps motivated either by title, by the idea of progression by title, or even just monetary compensation perspectives. But what seems to be happening, and I think the the, the change in different generations, new generations entering the workplace was, was leading to this anyway. But I think the pandemic meant that people were connecting to the why, the purpose of why they were working at a particular company more than ever. And alongside that, the personal growth. So it seems to be that that is an emerging trend. Very much so. Very much so. So then when you're thinking about, of course, those teams, and in particular, like within the finance arena, you go through periods of intensity. It could be fundraising, uh, it could be the budget cycle, uh, or even just closing the books. Do you have particular techniques for getting that cohesion and togetherness and the necessary intensity during those busy periods with your team? How do you, how do you manage that? One of the things that I look for, and probably the most important thing when I'm interviewing people is what I call fire in the belly. So unless I see somebody is really passionate, the fact that they have lots of years of experience, relevant experience, have worked at compelling businesses, all of that is good. But to me, a motivated individual who wants to succeed is way more important than trying to find that square peg for that you know square hole. So a lot of people that I hire you know, demonstrate that particular trait. And I actually, as I said earlier, spend a lot of time with my teams, not just personally coaching them, but also finding adequate opportunities for them to learn new skills. And I and I try to rotate teams. So have people try out new things for some period of time. And as long as they feel this is an environment where I can learn, people are, you know, caring about my own development, I find that they normally tend to stick around. And of course, when you get that, you have that succession planning for all different shapes inside uh, all different parts of your organization, all different uh, roles, presumably. Absolutely. The other part that you touched on earlier, which I found fascinating, of course, which is that you're a recovering software engineer and a developer, which means you're someone with a, at least with an interest, if not a passion in technology. And one of the themes that we touch on on the podcast with CFOs is that there was a time where I think... HR, finance, a lot of the other core uh, GNA functions were very underserved by technology. And that, of course, has completely changed now. There's a proliferation of different solutions, services, whether it's SaaS or fintech, that are out there to support finance. So how do you view technology within your team, within finance, um, as an enabler? And, and when, what are you looking to prioritize? Fantastic question. So we also live in a time where trying to find the right talent is hard. So to the extent we can automate, add intelligence to a lot of sort of mundane functions, not only does it help the individual, 
but also is very beneficial to the company. So I'll give you a handful of examples. Most CFOs and sales leaders would talk fairly regularly just to get a sense for how is the business progressing. You know, then you saw the advent of Salesforce and you can actually go into the portal and see how much business you've booked every quarter. But most subscription businesses and definitely software businesses are back-end loaded, which means a lot of the business comes in in the last two weeks of a quarter. As a CFO, the thing you worry about the most is missing your guidance. And that becomes very stressful. And historically, that would, you know, you would have verbal conversations with the sales leaders. You'd look into Salesforce. But what has happened is now there is a set of tools that actually sit on top of Salesforce and apply a level of AI to the deal flow that they see. And it is then synced in as an example to the email systems that the sales teams use, the phone conversations that are recorded. So there is a level of AI that is built in that I find super helpful that gives me a sense throughout the quarter as to where I think I will land. And I find that is way more precise even than what a sales leader will give me. And so I am very reliant on my AI models to give me a sense for how this quarter is going to shape up. So that, as an example, is one aspect of AI that we all talk about. Another one is we use a variety of data analytical tools. So the thing with not just finance, but in every company, there is a plethora of point solutions. In finance, you're going to have the accounting team use a bunch of solutions. There'll be a billing system. There'll be an accounting system. The FP&A team will have a different system. And many a times, these systems don't talk to each other. And getting them to do that then requires bringing in an army of consultants and building connectors. I find the easiest thing to do is we use Tableau as an example, as a data warehouse and analytical tool. So we dump a lot of data in Tableau. And I have teams then that are trained to use it and just slice and dice the data in a variety of ways to give me insights in the business that would be hard just looking at a NetSuite or whatever FP&A system you use. So I think having access to a data warehouse, the ability to analyze data, again, not just an Excel spreadsheet, super helpful in today's finance world, and having a level of some sort of an AI tool, and there's multitude of them in the market, I think gives a level of precision where you have one other data point than just talking to the sales leaders. Very helpful. And so then like the investment you have in tools, of course, that's increasing all the time and and the technical nature of finance. And by that, I mean, accounting's always been technical from a functional perspective, but the actual, the introduction of tech and and different software tools and technologies into finance seems to be increasing. So does that that then change what you need from your team in terms of skill set so that they can, one, know which processes to automate, which tools to select, and then of course, how to implement it? Because it's a different skill than traditionally you would have had. And that is very true. And what I require is a level of technical proficiency. And I'm going to say even the accounting teams that we hire today, people are generally very comfortable with a lot of these tech tools. And then we spend time training them. So there's a variety of courses that we've signed up for, whether it's through LinkedIn Learning or other firms that come and train our people. We do use external help as and when needed. I think it's hard to expect 
that somebody who is steeped in accounting is also going to be great at system implementation. So we do provide external help, but I always push my teams that the more they learn and the more adept they get at variety of things is going to not just help them grow, but also help them become better professionals down the road. And I find that they actually really look forward to it. They do gripe that it's extra work, but such is life. And yeah, I, I presume as well, that even with that extra work, that is part of the growth that can allow them to grow into other roles and actually progress in their career, which I presume is how you position it. Absolutely. There's no other way to position it. And one thing that we've not touched on is that, and it goes back to the topic of the team and the nature of the CFO role is that you mentioned that the CFO role has expanded, especially in the tech industry where you're, you need to provide more business management and commercial acumen to the leadership team and to the company. Surely that also filters down into the expectations that you have in your team and how they partner with different parts of the business, like sales and marketing and so forth. That approach to business partnering, is that something that you subscribe to? And if so, how do you engender that within your team? Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific point because at the end of the day, I would say all GNA functions, so finance, legal, HR, what sort of enablers for the business? And so there has to be a level of comfortable Uh, comfortableness in the team to interact with other parts of the organization and view themselves as enablers. Now, that is at times not congruent with the role of a finance person being the one to say no. But what I tell my teams is, leave the no part to me. That's easier for me to do. Your job should be figuring out ways how do you enable the rest of the business. With FP&A as an example in particular, we have teams divided by the various functions. So some people who interact with the product teams on a regular basis, some people who do that with sales and then marketing and so on. And that's typically how FP&A is organized. The accounting teams are obviously, they don't need that level of interaction with the rest of the company. But definitely as I look at controllers and assistant controllers, one of the things I look for is their ability to step back, understand the business imperatives, not just the accounting drivers. And that is, again, almost a requirement to be successful in these roles. We had conversations recently with guests about the idea of if you want to become a CFO and the CFO has that more extended role, it means that you need to start preparing for that earlier in your career. And actually means that as the CFO role has expanded, all of the the leadership roles underneath that, like a financial controller, that's expanded significantly too. So with the skills you needed to succeed in that role perhaps 10, 15 years ago are no longer enough. There are more table stakes. And that's true. So a controller historically would be somebody who was steeped in accounting, would be closing the books on, on time. And, and they sort of felt that's where the role ended. Today, the controller in many companies, and including mine today, are in charge of a deal desk, which means there's a variety of people that book all the deals that reports into the controller, which means a lot of salespeople are directly talking to the controller, and every software deal has its own nuance, and you need to find the right way to thread the needle so you're on the right side of the accounting bright line, but at the same time, being appropriately commercial, if you will, for booking new business. All of these skills probably didn't even exist in a controller 20 years ago, but now it's almost table stakes. So very, very important for controllers, assistant controllers to have a good grasp of the business dynamics and also develop a rapport with other parts of the business. 
And so with that in mind, Manish, and as we're drawing the interview to a close, I would love to get your perspective on, for any aspiring CFOs that might be listening, whether they are controllers or not, what advice would you give to them so that when the time comes, they, they could be successful in the role? A CFO today should approach the role as it's a very empowered role. It is not an accounting role. The role almost requires you to have a wider business perspective and actually go ask a lot of insightful questions and have an ability to influence other leaders in the business. So I think that I would say is number one. And I did talk about a CFO shouldn't really view that he or she has a particularly well-defined swim lane they should view the entire business as something that they can actually have a say in. And the more comfortable they are with that, the more successful they would be. Secondly, and it's not just saying no, but I did touch upon, they should feel very comfortable breaking some glass. And I think that's almost needed because for CFOs to earn the respect either from Wall Street or from their own peers, people need to see that they would stand up and actually break some glass ever once in a while because they are the only ones who are guarding what's going to happen to the financial profile of the business. In tech industry in particular, given that many founders are still CEOs and the founders obviously are doing things from a slightly different lens, it is important for that CFO to have the not just financial lens, but a business lens that maybe a founder wouldn't have. And so that I would say the second thing. And And the third thing which I particularly adhere to is simplicity. We live in a very complex world. And I find a good CFO will be able to distill things down into easy to understand concepts, not just to explain to the employee base, here's why we are doing what we are doing, but also then distill it down and explain to investors. So keep it simple, keep it easy to understand, easy to disseminate, take a stand when you have to, Don't worry about breaking glass and just realize that you're in a very empowered seat. So the more you view that role with that particular lens, the more successful you can be. I think that's great advice for for any of our audience that one day aspire to be in the position you're in. So Manish, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me and, and really appreciate it. Thank you again. One last thing. We want to learn from you our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.